Good afternoon, everyone. This is Jen Fry, Vision Council member for the Nature Organization of Nature Evolutionaries. I'd like to welcome you today to our Becoming a Nature Evolutionary Teleseminar. Today's talk is the fourth part of our Trees of Life series called The You Mysteries with Michael Dunning. This talk is being recorded and will be available on our website later today. Michael, uh, during the late 1980s, Michael became extremely ill as a result of an encounter in the far north of Scotland with an otherworldly being that he calls the Sulphur Demon. Several years later and close to death, he was led to an ancient female yew tree in the south of Scotland. Michael spent over nine years under this yew where he was healed and where he was given the template for a spiritual teaching that he refers to as the yew mysteries. In 2003, a series of events linked to the yew caused him to emigrate from Scotland to the U.S. Michael teaches the yew mysteries in Wales, Scotland, and in the U.S. He is currently writing a book about his experiences with the U. Michael is also a biodynamic cranial sacral therapist and teaches professional biodynamic trainings in northeastern U.S. You can hear him talk about that work on the Craniosacral podcast. As a former art student, Michael has a passion for drawing and painting, as well as for jazz music, and will play his 200-year-old double bass whenever he has the time. And I believe you can find some of his recordings on his website also. You can find out more about Michael and his work, including links to the Craniosacral podcast through his website at youmysteries.com, which you can also find a link to that through our, our website, natureevolutionaries.com. So it's with my great pleasure um, to, to turn it over to you, Michael, and hear what you, well, you and you have to share today. Thanks, Jen. <clears throat> I'm really delighted to be here. And to talk about the sacred yew tree as, the, as part of your current theme of trees of life um, and about what I've named as the, as the yew mysteries, as you, just, as you just mentioned, the direct teachings of the yew that uh, now form the core of a, a mystery school that's currently centered around uh, the key ancient, uh, some key ancient yew stands or yew sites in Wales and in Scotland. And in fact, you know, next year we have, um, we'll be taking the yew mysteries to Seattle in Washington State, um, where there actually are several fairly well-established uh, use in parks there, which is actually quite uh, remarkable. And I'll describe those mysteries and uh, when they're taking place and how to access those later on. So during our time together uh, today, I'd really like to focus on uh, just a, a few of the use unique and we could say uncanny abilities that might reveal its identity as a tree of life, but even as perhaps the tree of life. I'd like to um, also explore the use relationship to the winter solstice, which of course is very pertinent, and as well as the relationship, more broadly speaking, to realms of human nature, seen and unseen, and the divine. And as part of that, I'd like to describe um, two ancient yews and uh, for comparison's sake, really, and talk briefly about my own prolonged, very prolonged experience, as, we, as you mentioned in the introduction, with one of those yews and the very mysterious and traumatic way that that, that, that came about. 
But I think to begin with, I have to really give some thanks to many, a few people actually who are really central to, to all of this work. Um, I'm always indebted to my friend, Paul Greenwood. And to my mind, he's one of the world's leading U researchers and U advocates, and his work should be much, much more uh, known. He's also a founding member of the Ancient U group, which a group that seek to protect the U's in the UK. I'd also like to thank Fred Hageneder, or Hageneder, I never pronounce his name right, Paul gives me a row for that, and for his meticulous research and his wonderful, his amazing books that people should get a hold of about the U. And to my friend Janice Fry, who's based in Wales, for her um, unwavering dedication to the U. And uh, to my friends Emma and David Farrell, who've brought the U Mysteries to the UK and to Odyssea Morley, who's supported that work to extend into Scotland. But also really, most importantly, to the growing numbers of students of the U Mysteries who are supporting the work and you know, bringing it out into the world now, which is, to me, I could never have imagined that 20 years ago or so. That just seemed impossible. So I'm, I'm really excited about what's happening just now. So, but let me begin, I, I think, by offering a few words to set the stage, so to speak, for the youth to reveal itself and all of its strange otherworldliness, you could say. Because the youth seems to come from another world, another earth. It's really differently constituted than today's earth or the laws of that world, of that earth. It seems to be linked somehow perhaps to even an earlier earth, which sounds like a strange thing to say. And the first known recorded word we have for the U is the Hittite Eya, E-Y-A. And that's from 1750 BCE, so that's quite a long time ago. And that word Eya means eternity, and by extension, and I won't go into the etymology of that right now, by extension it means to be touched by eternity. So in terms of the you as the tree of life, this meaning of being touched by eternity is a really key motif. So in Ireland, um, we have um, from the Irish book of Lismore, 15th century, we have this. Three lifetimes of the you for the world from its beginning to its end. And from the 19th century, a British historian named G.J. Cumming, we have, you is ancient British and signifies existent or enduring, having the same root as Jehovah, and you in Welsh means it is. And also from the 19th century, a quote from Godfrey Higgins, who was the author of the book Celtic Druids, which is a very interesting book, and the you shows up in that book. May not the name for the you, the very name of the God Jehovah, have been given it from its supposed almost eternity of life? It is generally believed to be the longest lived tree in the world. If this were the case, when a person spoke of the yew tree, it would be nearly the same as to say the Lord's tree. 
So that's from Godfrey Higgins in 19th century. And really, right there, we see themes of longevity, endurance, eternity, and even of God, the whole notion of God being linked to, to the you. And those are really, you would call, attributes of a tree of life. And we might even refer to the, the you as the God tree. And, and that's still how it is known today in Japan as the God's tree. It's also known as the first rank, the God tree or the tree of the first rank. In fact, the U was known also as the tree of good measure. And that word measure is going to become kind of important as we go forward in this, in this talk today, which is really the same to say the tree of God measure. So when we say the tree of good measure, what we're really saying there is the tree of God measure. And we'll see a little later, perhaps, what a God measure might actually be in this instance related to the you. Probably not something we're familiar with today, except when we encounter a you, perhaps. So it's interesting that when we speak of words for God as linked to the you, such as Jehovah, and we see also Yahweh linked to the you. The word Jehovah is very close to actually an Irish word for you, Yod, which, funnily enough, and somehow pertinent for now, was the inspiration for the character Yoda in Star Wars. So the U is kind of finding its way into popular culture and has been doing for some years now. The movie Avatar, and I say this at my talks is, um, and at workshops, um, people will remember this great Ewa, this uh, tree, this amazing tree that's able to kind of transfer life forces from one being to another, this extraordinary tree of life. And Ewa must, of course, be related to the Hittite word Eya. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that the researchers there were aware of some of these links. And I've heard, I'm not sure about this, but Joseph Campbell was involved in uh, advising to the Star Wars movie and that uh, Cameron, who was, uh, who was the director of Avatar, I think was was a part of that uh, team filming Star Wars. So he would have had access perhaps to Joseph Campbell, but I'm not sure about that. But more recently, of course, we have uh, the movie Monster, A Monster Calls, which again, really recently, sees this young boy who is um, dealing with his mother dying of cancer, who strangely enough is actually being administered um, uh, uh, chemotherapy from, derived from the U itself. So you see this kind of double stream in that movie of the sort of um, the U portrayed in its, um, in its sort of uh, um, as, a, as a form of chemotherapy and at the same time as this great sort of um, being that comes to the boy, this great U being that comes to visit the boy portrayed by um, uh, Liam Neeson. So it's a really interesting film to watch and there's a wonderful animation in the middle of that film that talks about the U-medicine. Uh, very, very interesting that this is coming back to, to our consciousness now. So my own direct experience of the U, and I can talk about that in a moment, has led me to see the U as an incarnated eternity on earth. An incarnated eternity on earth, which is really quite a, a big thing to say. And what I mean by that is that a U embodies forces of vitality wholeness and regeneration that really once saturated the entire earth and its atmosphere. 
as a vast living fluid body that was really under the influence of an ancient and primordial sun strangely not the sun that we see in the sky today but what the ancients referred to as Saturn and it's no accident that the U is known as the tree of Saturn so this world this earth in relationship to Saturn and not the sun as we see today it was a great twilight world it was a world that knew neither day there was no night had no seasons there were no stars above and it was in a sense shrouded by a, a living sheath of nurturing and homogeneous warmth and during the early stages of, of this strangely constituted world of abundance there was no death there was no illness human beings were not constituted as they are today you might say that they were more etherically constituted than they were physical and they were able to live together easily with a host of spiritual beings so for me the key is that this world this early earth was of a different measure remember we talked about the tree of good measure the tree of God measure so this earth was of a different measure you could say perhaps a God measure and this twilight condition of the earth it was actually known to the ancients as a kind of paradise you know a golden age we hear about and the ancients saw this uh, world as ruled over by a great central God often known as the firm heart in the sky and um, this God was known uh, by many names a lot that we, we think of in terms of the sun in the sky today but actually these gods were actually connected originally to Saturn such as Atum, Osiris, Horus in ancient Egypt or depending on the region of course in Sumeria the stationary god at the center usually in the celestial north was known as An or Anu in fact the ideogram for An was a star implying heaven highness or a shining being so the very institution itself of kingship was said to have descended from the very heaven of Anne. And some of the work that Paul has been doing, Paul Greenwood over in, in the north of England, we're seeing this now as reflected in Irish records going back thousands of years with kings having you names. This is quite an extraordinary piece of research that Paul has been doing it's, it's really showing us how deep the U goes into particularly into, into Irish the Irish the annals of the kings and these kings were first recorded as divine leaders Tuatha De Danan but slowly they, they, they become men and then they become saints and then bishops with U names and if we have time we can talk a little, a little bit more about that but to the Greeks, this central god, this Saturnian god, was of course Kronos. And you can think of Yama to the Hindus. And in China, they had the Yellow Emperor. All of these gods refer to Saturn, not to the sun that we see today. So Saturn, as a ruler of the Golden Age, was a core teaching in the ancient mysteries. And, you know, this is why a lot later on, 
the most sacred and, of course, the seventh day of the week was dedicated to Saturn. You can think of the Sabbath as named after Saturn. This is the same as the, the seventh day of the, of the Babylonians and the Phoenicians. And for the Romans, it was Saturn Deus, meaning Saturn's day. And, of course, we have our Saturday. But this original God measure, this original state of Earth, was inevitably going to change. And what I saw my time beneath the U, and it's actually taken me 20 years to find a language for this, was really a vision of the approaching sun and solar system, approaching this ancient enclosed world. And it was an approaching light that slowly, over aeons, began to change the conditions on this early Earth. So under the influence of this approaching sun, the Earth began to become more physicalized, more material, if you like. And that eternal twilight world fell under the influence of a new rhythm, a new tempo, a new measure. And that's what's really important to get a new measure began to manifest. Seasons were born slowly. Day and night began to differentiate and new life rhythms emerged. And let's just pause for a minute and just to think of an evergreen tree and ask yourself why it is evergreen. What is the gesture of that? What does that actually mean? It tells us that that is evergreenness, it tells us that, it, that that tree is independent of the seasons. It was there before the seasons differentiated. That's a big thought. It was there before the seasons differentiated. So evergreens are of the measure of the old earth. They're part of the old measure. And that really gives us a sense of the you as being very central in this, as we'll see. So finally, the Earth and Saturn were captured by the solar system as we understand that today. But that solar system didn't always exist as it appears today. And this is a really important consideration when we're trying to make sense of a U. And it's not really actually that crazy or old an idea. And, you know, in 1977, for example, Ralph Jurgens, who was a physicist inspired by um, Emmanuel Velikovsky, he proposed the idea that the, that the sun that we see today in the sky could actually capture a wayward planet. Which sounds very strange to us, this, this kind of thinking. And even NASA scientists, though, have said that the Earth didn't come out of the same nebulous material that created the sun. And it's interesting that there's an old Druid teaching that the sun had a separate birth, independent of the Earth. And the two having originated from two separate eggs in Kuridwen's cauldron or Kuridwen's ark. And the sun was actually regarded as younger than the earth. And we'll, we'll return to, to Kuridwen and our cauldron when we, when we look at the solstice in a, in a little while. But what's really key here is that the old forces, the, the, the more etheric life forces that had surrounded, nourished and bathed the earth had to withdraw under this new measure of this new sun. And what was outside 
as a sort of permeating force etherically became an inside etheric realm, an inner life realm. So what was outside became an inside. And what we refer to as the underworld or Anun in Welsh was born as a realm unto itself. And you can think of the stories here of the she, the shining ones, Tuatha de Danan, withdrawing into the underworld. Many beings actually withdrew from this new solar order or this new solar measure. And um, when we look in the Irish stories, as you probably won't have time to today, we see that the that the um, the she there were she mounds in Ireland that were dedicated to you devas, and uh, that um, Danu is very close to this Sumerian word Anu was this kind of you goddess who had um, a family sons uh, a brother with you name a father with you names it's really quite an extraordinary story that could spend a whole talk discussing just simply the Irish connections to, to the you and the tree of life. But to think about this etheric world, to think about this potency of this world, uh, for me, I stumbled upon a quote from Aristotle. And he was speaking about the ether. And he said of the ether, it is that which is different from earth, air, water, and fire. It is eternal and eternally revolves. So there's a different principle there, something that actually gives birth to the elements, the elements being born out of this etheric realm. And for me, these are really the direct teachings of the you, not just simply ideas or concepts. And the you experience these transitions, not only as a memory. The you is a tree of life, the tree of the original God measure, the original measure of eternity. It was given a power to resist these changes, to turn away from the sun as it does through all of its gestures, to hold the powers of earth, of this old earth, the Saturnian earth. And this is why it's not only the tree of Saturn, but why it was regarded by the Hittites as Ea, the tree of eternity on earth. There needed to be a being who could hold these powers, this original state, who could incarnate that original state of wholeness as eternity on earth, but who could do it selflessly. And that's the big key with the you. Doesn't ask for anything in return. So we could ask now, perhaps, what is a you? And, you know, there's a, there's a sort of in-joke in the, in the small you community that, that nobody actually knows what a you tree is. Um, botanists have struggled and puzzled over whether the U should even be classified as a conifer. And I, personally, I wonder if we can even regard it as a tree because it does so many things that are, are just simply not tree-like. But at the moment, it continues to be defined as a conifer, but largely uh, because the definition of conifer was extended to actually include the U. So um, right now we're still regarding the you as a conifer. But what we can say about it is it's, it's evergreen, extremely long-lived, if not immortal being on Earth. Um, species on Earth today, Taxus baccata, baccata meaning berry, berry bearing, is said to be 50 million years old, but the you existed a lot 
earlier alongside the Jurassic dinosaurs, in fact. So it's at least 150 million years old and actually largely unchanged in its morphology since that time. And it was actually preceded by what's called Paleotaxis rediviva, which is a sort of global youth that was in existence some 200 million years ago. But uh, when we think of the U as a conifer, we can actually go back 360 million years to the late Carboniferous period to look from a more scientific, botanical perspective anyway, at the origin of the U. So this makes the U the oldest tree species in Europe. And you know, my own sense of Paleotaxis rediviva, based on the visions that I, I, I had under the U over that period of time, is of it really as a single organism, which is really what we mean by a tree of life, spread across the early forming land masses and then sort of ripped apart Osiris-like when the continents began to form out. The original wholeness of that one you, the original tree of life, we could say was dismembered, but at the same time preserved by the ancient yews. Some of them actually are still alive on the earth as it stands today. And that's a very controversial thing to say. And it's this original wholeness, this capacity to heal and regenerate indefinitely, without human interference that is, that makes the yew not only the oldest tree species in Europe, but also the most youthful. And it's as if the U has been able to retain the embry embryonic forces of the early Saturnian Earth within its living gesture. And we see these forces in many of the abilities of the U, but, but from, to my mind, one of the most remarkable is its ability to express either female or male, depending on its environment or depending on its circumstances. For example, in the centre of Scotland, in Fortingal, the Fortingal U um, has been shown to, which is a predominantly male expressing U, has been shown to be um, uh, have areas of uh, female branches growing, which is extraordinary. And at Ormiston U, where we actually run some of our workshops in Scotland, the Ormiston U is an extraordinary being. There's a male section in that dominantly female expressed you. So there's a plasticity there. And this is telling us that the you is neither male or female, but stands above those polarities. Again, revealing access to forces that don't seem to belong to the world as it's constituted today. And in fact, another interesting thing is the bioelectric activity of the use, and that stands out pretty remarkable actually in studies in 2004 of what's called the geophytoelectrical currents that were done in the Czech Republic actually. And they, they, those studies revealed that the U is very much awake during the midwinter and exhibits very high vitality rates as compared to other conifers such as spruce for example that really essentially hibernate their um, geophytoelectrical currents close to zero. So the U is also extremely resistant to environmental pollution, chemical pollution particularly. And um, again, studies in the Czech Republic around areas that have been heavily polluted during the communist regime, communist era, uh, these, those U's showed vitality rates of close to 90%, even 100%. Quite extraordinary. So sometimes it's difficult to really get a handle on 
where the U is found. And it's quite, it's quite, it's found quite far afield, actually. India, Japan, Mexico, USA, Northwest Africa, China, Eastern Siberia. And sometimes we can think of it stretching from north to south, um, extending from southern Norway to Algeria, or in the Americas from, you know, from Central America right down to Mexico and Guatemala, and in Asia, south as Vietnam, Philippines, and even Indonesia. But the majority of the significant ancient use stands today are in Georgia, southern Russia, and the British Isles. And, you know, the British Isles is really seen as a, as a really as a Noah's Ark for the ancient new trees. Um, but, you know, the U has not been given proper protection in the UK. And uh, thankfully, we have groups like the AYG, Ancient U Group, who are working hard to bring in different ways to hopefully protect these trees more um, than they are currently. So, so I want to talk a little bit just now about my, um, my own story, just a little bit. And that in relationship to two different U's. And I've talked a lot about the events that led me to, to the U in the southeast of Scotland. And to talk about that story entirely would take up the whole time. So people can go to my website if they really want to hear more about that specific story. Um, and I'll just give a very short version of, of it here so we can stay on track with some of the things we want to talk about. Um, so in 1987, I had an encounter in the far north of Scotland, as you had talked about in the beginning, Jen, um, in a place called Thurzo. It means Thor's River. It was near a fairly kind of dangerous, actually, as it turned out, nuclear reactor or actual reprocessing center called Dune Ray. And I had an encounter there with a being referred to as the sulfur demon. And I don't mean demon in the biblical or the sort of medieval sense, but more in the sense of that world as, as coming from the same Sanskrit root as the word uh, deva, which really therefore means to shine. So this sulfur demon was really, perhaps you could say, a darkly shining being. And this being took me through a, a very traumatic, very intense process that here we might call death. And it subjected my physical body to forces that of such density and painful density uh, that I was able in a way to directly experience this kind of level of matter that had seemed to fall completely out of the of this realm of matter that we understand, this realm of nature that we understand into something beneath. It's like a fallen form of matter somehow that I seem to have experienced somehow beneath the reach of living forces, living spiritual forces. And some people refer to this as a kind of realm of subnature. And uh, it's not an accident in my mind that this event occurred next to a nuclear facility that was using, you know, transuranic elements brought about through the black alchemy of nuclear fission that, that we as human beings have brought to the world. And this was a teaching, but 
for me, but I didn't I didn't realize at the time because I was so, so ill after that event. And gradually, over time, I realized that I was kind of experiencing this realm of subnature, this realm of condensed sort of corpse-like matter taken to its absolute, complete corpse-like nature. But at the same time, I was, being, I was experiencing this other world, this underworld, this kind of world of anun, of living force that was sort of pulling me in the opposite direction. So I was sort of pulled in two directions. So living in this corpse-like world of matter, but also drawn asunder, drawn into this expanded consciousness of, of this world we call the underworld or, or anun. And it was a long struggle. And I won't talk all about it just now, but for about six years I struggled with that. Basically to stay alive. But I could barely walk. My body smelled as if it was on fire. It was burning electricity smell. People would often comment on it. My hair fell out in great big clumps. My skin was yellow. And as I said, my perception was literally stretched across this kind of twilight vista filled with dark, shiny beings that I could not really understand. I had no idea where my body was in space, so I had no sense of where the earth was beneath me. And it, it was actually as if the, the ground would pull away, almost reject me when I tried to, to walk. I was extremely disoriented. Um, I lost sense of taste. I couldn't see colors. And it was probably, I think we could say, 1993. So six years of this living hell, and I was finally led to an ancient female you in the southeast of Scotland. And it took all of those visceral somatic perceptual experience, the feeling of dying, the endless panic attacks that I had almost every moment, and the sense of presence of beings and um, this very distorted reality. And it began to shape and transmutate them within and around me as a form of healing. I didn't understand this at the time. Even as a sort of new body and a new kind of perception. And now when I talk about the you mysteries, I, I refer to this as really the perception of Anun, perception of, of the underworld, which is really what the you can teach us. So it should really give people a, a, an image of this you and I was taken to this you at night time. This is my first encounter and pushed into this great black space, this black hole, which was really a tunnel. And I realized as I was passing through this tunnel that it was a tunnel of branches. And it was a singularity to this. It was like moving through a, a long umbilical cord. You couldn't move to one side or the other. You couldn't stand up. It's about 40 feet long tunnel, as, as I say often, of branch contortion. Spike you if you move one way or the other. And finally, coming into a rise and into this great chamber, self-enclosed, inverted, cauldron-like chamber, which is really the body of this you in the southeast of Scotland, in the centre standing this central pillar of the, of the bowl or the trunk of the tree. And I, it was dark, there was some moon, and as I walked towards it, the centre of the tree and touched the bowl, the trunk of the tree, I looked up and could see that the branches came out from the tree in great graceful arts like a gothic cathedral and 
descended back into the earth, growing along the earth and rooting to become a whole other forest of yews, clones of itself around a periphery. So you had the center, these, these branches descending back down to create a perfect circle, a perfect cauldron, inverted cauldron, and then this other forest of you, of its own self, as a given of itself, itself given to itself, if you like, like this whole idea of Odin, spread out in this great periphery, 400 feet circumference to this you, an extraordinary, extraordinary being. And this ability of the you to, what we call branch layer, to touch the ground and then create a branch runner that moves across the ground at quite a distance to then become another tree, a clone of itself, an offspring. And um, this year was quite extraordinary. And I spent nine years, just over nine years under that tree. And as I said, and you said at the beginning, I was finally healed and able to sort of stumble back into the world, you could say, even though, of course, I had to interact with the world during that, those nine years. And for the last 20 years or so, I've been working with the, the you to find a language to communicate the experiences that I had there, which were very, very difficult to put into language. Um, so it has taken me really literally 20 years to bring this work forward. So now I have, a, there's a set of, you know, really a set of core teachings and principles that can be worked with in partnership with the you and the shining beings of Anun that the you houses. Um, so this you near Edinburgh, there's a gesture of an inside there, a chamber, an inner space that is wholly different from the space outside. All of the healing for me that took place, took place as though my body was expanded into the interiority of the you. So I felt as though it was my body. That entire interior became my body as a form of healing. It was almost like being an embryo again. And it led me to actually study embryology very intensively to find a language for that. I could not find any language in any shamanic book. I didn't even know what shamanism was at that time. And when I did discover that, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, apart from sort of dismemberment experiences and things like that, that had any relationship to this. I had to abandon all the shamanic stuff, all the new age stuff, and go to embryology to understand my experiences. And that took me to biodynamic craniosacral. So this you marks off an inner space. It's of a different measure. Um, and in, in the language of the you mysteries that, I'm, that I've been talking about, this, this um, space, this inner space, this gesture, reveals a you that has been able to fulfill itself. Many yous are not allowed to fulfill themselves. They're cut back in graveyards. They're cut back they're tampered with. They're not allowed to complete their gestures. There's very few yous around that are able to have been able to do that. This you that I spent time with, called the Wittingham you, southeast of Scotland, has fulfilled itself. It's fulfilled its gestures, as has the Ormiston you nearby. This is a rare thing. And it's not appreciated. Not, not, it's not appreciated in the you community, and it's not appreciated um, beyond that at all. The understanding of that. Yous are dated um, usually by their girth and the actual you I spent time in doesn't have a very wide uh, girth because it has pushed itself out to the periphery. How do you measure that? It's a tree of God measure. You can't measure that. Yet many yous are measured in 
by their girth, and then given an age as being ancient or uh, notable or old or uh, you know whatever. There's a lot of classification. These youths that fulfill themselves go beyond all classification. And that's why it's difficult to date these youths. That's why it's there. they fall outside of the categories that have been put in place. Um, so saying that, to go to another you, which is actually more recognizable in terms of categorization, um, but no less amazing, is a you in Monmouthshire in Wales known as Betis Newith. And it's a you that we've also done work with, with the You Mysteries now, um, through the work with Emma and David Farrell. And with this you, we're led into the heart of the you's unique process of what we call hollowing. And hollowing is thought to be caused by a common fungus called uh, brown tubercle rot. And that process of hollowing can be initiated by, sometimes by a loss of a portion of a trunk or by a branch removal. And sometimes what you'll see in churchyards is where uh, a hollow section faces a road or pathway that branches may have been impinging on and perhaps a hundred years or so ago or even hundreds of years ago these branches were removed finally you see it's almost like an armpit you know underneath the arm the branch as it gets removed this hollowing takes place so there's a kind of a wound there but these hollows can actually heal with through the literally flowing cambium of the you which is like us almost like a fluid that flows around and begins to heal over these wounds like a new skin and with Betis Newith in Wales, we have, you know, we have one of the finest examples that I've ever seen of something remarkable in a U. And that's within that hollow of this great U, which I'll talk about his measurements in a minute, within the ceiling or the internal upper chamber of that U, trying to imagine a hollow space and looking up into its vault and seeing a tiny shoot appearing. And that's called an aerial shoot in a U. And that shoot goes down and down and down. How long might that take? And down and down, finally to reach the ground, to take root, to become a new trunk. And that aerial shoot in Betis Newith is measured at seven foot six in girth. Um, and that was measured in 1998. Um, the measurement of the, the shell-like you around about it, around about this, the skin, if you like, of the U, still very healthy around this aerial shoot, is measured at 31 foot in girth. So it's quite extraordinary that this, out of the cambium in this arch ceiling, grows this extraordinary aerial shoot that's descended to become a new trunk. In 1876, this outer girth was measured at 30 foot 6 inches. And that internal trunk was already noted at that time. So in 140 years or so, the girth of that U has only increased by six inches. With that internal trunk already clearly there and clearly of significant girth. So you have to think about this. Just visualize this for a minute. What if that skin, the outer girth of the U, that 30 one or 33 feet, depending on what you read and where the measurements are taking, what height they're taking from. That, that outer skin could itself have been at one time an aerial shoot that grew down from inside of the hollow of an even older you. And that one then could have been grown from the one, from one before that and before that and before that. 
How far back do we really go with this? This is an extraordinary principle of the eternity of the you. And this is how we have to think of when we're in a you. How long did it take for that aerial shoot to grow? How long would it take for that to happen? And perhaps the outer shell of the you was itself once an aerial shoot. We have to think that way with the you. I'd like now to talk a wee bit in the time we have left about Yggdrasil, the world tree, and a little bit about Rosalind Chapel in the U. And my friend uh, Chris Kenosis, who runs wonderful tours at, at, at Rosalind, I'm sure will be pleased um, to hear me talk about this. Um, so we know that Yggdrasil sorry, is the Norse tree of life. So let's go back to Scotland and to Rosalind Chapel. And it's not very far from the U where I spent all that time, in fact. And it's actually been suggested by Tim Wallace Murphy and others that Rosalind Chapel was built, which was built actually in the 15th century, represents the final place on El Camino, the St. James's Way, the Pilgrim's Path. And each holy place on that path was built on a former Druidic centre. Even the most important universities during the Middle Ages were built on that path. So Rosalind Chapel is a temple dedicated to Saturn. And Saturn was the furthest planet out as it was known at that time. So in the 15th century, this, this chapel was built to mark an end point, Saturn being this kind of end, this omega point. Um, and to pass beyond that point is to pass into another world, so to speak. And you can think of, um, to, we can relate this to the human body, and actually it's a very interesting thing to do because we can see the organ of Saturn in the human body as the spleen. And what does the spleen do? The spleen's a remarkable organ because it takes the blood out of the circulation. So you know, a remarkable phenomenon that the blood can be actually withdrawn from the circulation. This is the only place it happens in the human body. The spleen will take the blood out and look at it. It's this kind of place of death, this, this end point for the blood. It takes the blood, it looks at it, and it will destroy the worn out blood cells. The healthy blood cells have to fold themselves up to get through a, mesh, a meshwork-like structure in the spleen to get back into circulation again. And the old, worn-out um, red blood cells don't have the ability to fold. They can't do their yoga anymore, you could say, these blood cells. So they get basically um, destroyed and, and basically um, eaten by macrophages. So, so inside the chapel of Rosalind is the most... One of the most famous pillars that there is, the apprentice pillar. But the current Earl of Roslyn, and therein lies a whole other story about the actual St. Clair's, the Earls of Roslyn, which I won't have time to go into today, regards this apprentice pillar as a depiction of Yggdrasil, the world tree. And as we'll see in a minute, Yggdrasil was a yew tree. And to understand that, we've got to go to Nordic texts that were written in the Scaldic tradition, which is, as people know, employed an awful lot of metaphor and synonym, and these were known as kennings. And those kennings, they assumed a really deep understanding of, of Nordic um, history and mythology. So when British and German anthropologists of 18th, 19th century, um, when they looked at the kenning that was given for the world tree, and they saw it as Barask. B-A-R-R-A-S-K-R, Barask, which actually means evergreen needle ash. So they looked at that, not really understanding how kennings work, and they took it literally to mean ash. 
And this is stuck. This is, we've got stuck with this now, is the meaning of the world tree as an ash. Um, but over the last 30 years, a lot more research has arisen to reveal that really, Yggdrasil is a you. Because let's face it, the, the ash is not evergreen, doesn't have needles. And we also look at other um, Icelandic texts who refer to the world tree as winter greenish tree. It's not a good description of an ash either, is it? But it's fitting for a yew. And in the Voluspa, we hear of nine yew root giantesses under the ground who give birth to Hemdal. Hemdal's become very popular now with all the Marvel stuff. But by, by the Viking age, Hemdal was anthropomorphized which we see now in the comics and the Marvel things and all of that nonsense. But originally he was a vegetation god. Sometimes he was even known as a white ancient or even as a shining vegetation god. And Fred Hagenader, in his books, he talks about Heim as an ancient word for world and Dal is an old Icelandic term for tree. So Heimdall is the world tree. Heim, world, Dal, tree. So Heimdall himself, born of nine U-roots or U-giants. So Heimdall is telling us, or Heimdall is telling us that he's the son of nine mothers who are U's, who are sisters. So he's the world tree, he's a divine being, and he's born of nine U-devas. And we, as it's announced in the Voluspa, we, humanity, are the children of Heimdall. It says right at the beginning of the Voluspa, Hallowed seed, this is humanity, are announced as hallowed seed, greater and humbler, sons of Hendel. So we are the offspring of the world tree, the children of a new deity. We can go even further with this, in fact. In the old Swedish capital of Uppsala, there was an evergreen tree. It was recorded in the 11th century. And this was also thought to be a U. And we can look to the, the runes. The U has two runes, doesn't it? So it has Awas and it has Ir, symbolizing transformation, death, rebirth. But the Ash doesn't have any runes. And the Norse word for U, Ir, can also mean U column. And this gives us an interpretation of Yggdrasil as a U column or U pillar around which the world revolves, effectively the world tree. Even Asgard itself is situated in U valley and protected by the river Ifing, which is the U River. There's even another word that brings light to this. Idavol, or Idavol, was the meeting place of the gods on the plain of Ida, or Ida in the middle of Asgard. Now, Ida means you, and Vol is something that renews itself. So, Idavol is something, as a you, means basically you that renews itself. And that was the, place, the meeting place for the gods. You also have Ul, the predecessor possibly to, to Odin, this god who actually had a U-bow and goes through the snow in his U-skis. And Ul is another word for the name uh, U, and it sounds very much like Yule, doesn't it? Ul, Yule. So, what, so returning for a minute to Rosalind Chapel, we see that within a chapel dedicated to Saturn, there stands a U-pillar or a U-column that is known to be a depiction of Yggdrasil the world tree, and the tree of life. I mean, really, need I, need I really say much more about that? But what's interesting to me is that Roslyn Chapel is built on a telluric, telluric seam, a sort of geomantic corridor 
you might say that's popularly called the Rose Line. It doesn't matter to me what it's called, but it runs from Orkney and through Caithness, which were the strongholds of the St. Clair's who actually built Roslyn Chapel, and through the area near Thurzo, where my journey began with the U. It then passes through Edinburgh and through Roslyn Chapel. In fact, it's really interesting because the very first um, U Mysteries workshop took place on that Rose Line in southeast Wales. And that area of Wales is known for its new tribe, the Silurians, or the Silures. So my whole initiation, my whole experience with the U has taken place on what is called popularly in the Rose Line. And um, this great Tolerate Corridor running down, right down through, through Scotland. And much more I could say about that, but we'll leave that for just, for just now. I'd like to talk a little bit about the solstice now as we start to kind of conclude here and, and also Yule and uh, a little bit more about Saturn in relationship to the U. So during the, um, the winter months, we might say that the, the tendency of the Earth is to absorb forces, those being cosmic spiritual forces. And what was outside during the spring and summer, you know, forces that foster growth, blossom, blossoming process, is slowly drawn inward during the autumn to finally be absorbed by the earth in winter. And we can go back now to Curidwen's cauldron here. And we see this directly in the story of her cauldron. Her cauldron it shimmers for a year and a day, that day being the 21st of December, the day of 40 hours, during which Curidwen clothes the Mabin sun of each year at the winter solstice with a fresh body. And the sense here is of a memory that the solar orb, the sun in the sky, is not permanent, has not always been there, and it has to descend into the cauldron, literally into Anun, each year to be given a new body, to be renewed by the underworld beings and forces. And what's important here is the descent of the solar orb into Anun. It's a means of renewal. And that's a key aspect of the U Mysteries. The sun must re return literally to the world egg, the secret lead of the sages, as Saturn was known by the alchemists in the Middle Ages. But the key here, and this is really the important part of this, the key here is that the rule of the sun is suspended. It's held in abeyance. The sun has stopped measuring time. Its rhythmicity is broken for a period of three days. A still point is, in time is expressed at the winter solstice. And through that still point, that fulcrum of suspension, where time, the solar measure of time is stilled, we see the activity of the original sun, that of Saturn. The memory of a twilight world, a world of eternity is awakened, and with it, the memory of Anun. That was the old measure, the God measure, the measure of a you, eternity. The very earth is rejuvenated at the solstice through the same forces of Anun that the U holds in permanence as the living, sentient gestures of an incarnated eternity on earth. I'm going to say that one more time. So the very earth is rejuvenated at the solstice through the same forces of Anun that the you hold in permanence as the living, sentient gestures of an incarnated eternity on earth. Remember the Book of Lismore, 
three lifetimes of the youth and the world from its beginning to its end. So the winter solstice reinvigorates the earth. Anun takes its forces back into itself fully during the winter. And the fulcrum of that process occurs at the winter solstice. And you can think of the majority of elemental beings also withdrawn into that interiority of the earth at this time. And the ascents return to Anun where they originated. Anun becomes reinvigorated and because of this the earth is most alive, most living inside itself during the winter. So when the sun is at its weakest point in relation to the earth, of course we have to think of this in antipodeal terms, the same earth, the earth is rejuvenated. So when the sun is at its weakest point in relationship to the earth, the earth is rejuvenated. It becomes most alive and full of living forces within itself. And, you know, when I moved from Scotland to New, to New England, that really hit me. There's a more of a sort of homogeneity to the seasons in Scotland and the UK, but coming to New England, and especially right, living on the snow line in, North, in western Massachusetts, I just got a sense of this, that depth of which, of which I never had before, of this skin of snow for several months of the year and feeling this and suddenly understanding this in a different, more profound way. But we can think of the Greeks um, celebrating Helia, 25th of December, from Helios, which was originally a word for Saturn, not for the sun, as was the word Sol, by the way. These were not words for the sun, but they originally were words for Saturn. And um, the Romans celebrated Saturnalia and Calendia, where gifts were exchanged and where trees were decorated. And I'm coming more towards the end here. But more significantly, you, uh, roles were reversed at this time. And this is, again, the whole idea of the suspension of measure. Masters, masters served slaves, and there were mock kings called the lords of misrule, very much like our sort of modern carnival characters, you could say. And these were old customs enacted, you know, where men dressed in animal hides, in animal masks, and in women's clothes. And these go back at least to, to ancient Greece. So we see a role reversal here and also a loosening of sexual identity, very much like a sense of the you. And this is key to our understanding of the powers of the you, as neither male nor female, and its relationship to the older world, the Saturnist sun, a world whose forces were still very much in potential, nothing being determined, and everything yet possible. And that's really key. So each time we enter the chamber of a space of our you, we're entering into Anu the shining land of death, as it's sometimes called. And the bark of a you gives off a hallucinogenic toxin, an alkaloid toxin. But unlike other psychoactive plants, the you cannot be ingested by a human, but rather ingests a human. So to walk under a you is to walk into the underworld, is to be ingested by the you. If the you were akin to other psychoactive plants that could be ingested, we might experience perhaps a shift in consciousness quite quickly as the undigested protein, as I've said many times in the plant, the alkaloids seek to complete themselves, their incomplete metabolism in our blood. But this is not possible in the you because its forces are of the underworld. And to ingest those will kill a human being. So the you needs nothing from us, and yet it stays with us patiently and lovingly and selflessly as we continue to destroy and threaten it. The only edible part, the only part that if you like, protrudes into the solar world is the arrow, the you berry. And even then you can only eat the flesh of that. The seeds are also deadly. So a long time ago I realized that when I entered the chamber of the you, I was entering into the consciousness, into its very thinking. 
And this is what I've called the alkaloid cloud or the alkaloid mist, the consciousness or thinking of a you. And to my knowledge, I'm the only person ever to have identified or, or talked about this aspect of the you. So to communicate with the you, to learn from it, we, we have to change. We can't ingest something and get a lifted consciousness. There's no quick fix. There's no easy download. There's no fat, fast pseudo-spiritual technique. There's no substance, as I said, to ingest. There's no easy route into its world. We are tasked to develop a different consciousness, even a different body, literally. So the new challenge is to become differently embodied, to birth a new consciousness out of ourselves. That's not a function of the way we use our senses to grasp at things, to possess things, to go after an experience. And this is a key part of the work I call the new mysteries. And it's not the only way up the mountain. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that the you is going to save the planet, um, but it does offer us a partnership, the possibility of a co-creative relationship with the you, and through that, with the forces of Anu, forces of the underworld, and with the shining ones who dwell there. So just before I finish, if we have time, I'd like to talk about Yule. And the etymology of the word is uncertain, but it's often said to be connected to the old Saxon for wheel, which I suppose does make sense, but it's when we look at the phonetics we begin to see the U. So you think of the word Yule. In Old English, we have a word for you, Yao. In Irish, we have Yuer. In Scots Gaelic, we have Yuer. We have the word Yod that we've talked about earlier. And we have, of course, the word you. So the phonetics begin to give us the clue to the connections between you and Yule. And the Yule log was originally you predecessor to it, really to the Christmas tree. And it burned very slowly due to the dense heartwood of a U. And that was symbolic of the 13 days of the Yule celebrations at Yuletide. Had to have a, a wood that was slow burning wood. And, you know, after all, the U rune is the 13th uh, rune, anyways. So this 13 is very is a very important number to the U, as is the number 9. In the Middle Ages, in Europe, churchyards were used for the mystery plays such as Adam and Eve, for example, and the yew was chosen as a paradise tree for those plays. And in Germany and Switzerland, this gradually became the indoor Christmas tree. It was originally a, a yew branch uh, to, to represent this paradise tree. And there's a, there's a nice little uh, phrase here. It says, the taxis tree, and taxis means yew, by the way, the taxis tree abounds with apples, behold, and sparkles all over with silver and gold. The taxis tree abounds with apples, behold, and sparkles all over with silver and gold. And even our old pal Santa relates to all of this. He's, he's Saturn, he's the old man who lives at the North Pole. He's the old god. He brings a sprig of evergreen to the children of men. This is the original shamanic Santa related to the evergreen, most likely, of course, to the youth. So we see Santa as an echo of the primordial monarch, the celestial north we've talked about earlier as Osiris, Yama, Kronos. He's spreading good fortune and gifts. He's the overseer of the golden age. You know, a wee bit about the Christmas tree here. The first description of the tree is from 1789, from Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And it was popularized, the Christmas tree was popularized in England in the mid-19th century by none other than German Prince Albert, who was the husband of Queen Victoria, in fact. And um, that tree that was used there was also a U. 
But that use of the evergreen tree um, and wreaths to symbolize eternal life goes back to, to ancient Egypt, to the Hebrews, Hittites, and even to the Chinese. So placing gifts beneath the tree probably goes back to the Hittites, tree rituals, and this may be, for, to my mind, related to the placenta being hung in a tree. And actually there's a great teaching in the U Mysteries about the function of a placenta. What is a placenta? It's way beyond what we understand it as. And that's one of the core teachings in the U Mysteries. So we have this earliest word for you, Hithiaea, to be touched by eternity. And this idea of this gifts being placed back beneath the tree going back to the Hithite rituals. So right now, um, I could either move into a conclusion, um, perhaps Jen, and just go into a brief conclusion, or, or I think probably we've not got time for questions at this point, but I'll, I'll take your guidance from that. You can let me know. Hi, hi Michael. Sorry, I was muted. Um, yeah, I think... Uh... How about we have one question, and then we go into a conclusion. So Sounds if good. you have a burning question, please press star five, and we'll call on you. I'm just waiting for that to happen. Okay. Oh, there's somebody I just have to find you. Okay. Let me get you on here. Hello? Hi, Jen. Yes, hi. Hi, great. This is Sarah Arredondo. Um, I just wanted to ask about um, future Seattle workshops. I, it, it sounded like you were all going to get back to that um, at some point, but I just wanted to make sure that was going to be brought back up. This is all really great, so thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And yes, the Seattle workshops will be um, taking place in uh, June into early July. Uh, next year and I'll give details about that later on yeah thank you Sarah I've actually Michael we have one more question here I'm going to answer or not answer call on (laughs) (laughs) April April, are you there I am and I was just so intrigued by the one of the last things that you said about the significance of the placenta and I don't know if you could just a sentence or two about that in your conclusion, because it kind of left me hanging. Like, what is it? So. Ah, you see, that's what I do. I, I just leave people hanging, just like the placenta would be hung in a tree a long time ago. But <laughs> yes, I mean, well, it's an organ. Just briefly, I'll say this now because I don't think I would really pull it into the conclusion. But the the organ, the placenta, is an organ that sort of stands in between, if you like. You know, you think of the placenta as being genetically identical to the to the um, to the individual, not to the mother. So there's there's a there's a twin. Each of us comes into the world with a twin, a placental twin, that gives its life over at the moment of our birth, and we take our first breath. And that being gives itself, allows itself to 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 go into what we call death. But it's to do with the old idea of the the, the ruling dragon, the dragon that um, reigns. Um, down below is slain, but the dragon that reigns up above continues to reign. So that this whole idea of the second body, the placental body, continues to inform us through life. 
even after the death of the physical organ that we call the placenta. So we're always a being of two bodies. And it's that a core teaching of the You Mysteries that I learned directly in my own process of healing was that, the, was that there are two bodies involved in a human being that it, we're sort of tasked to start to bring together uh, as we proceed. And this is the body that I call the dragon body, and it's a, a part of the You Mysteries teaching. So the placenta and what that means is very important. And, you know, you can look at Dogon culture and you can see how important it is to, to, to them, um, to um, in many different cultures. Um, placental guardians were, were, were seen throughout the ancient cultures. So, so we have this idea of a placental guardian that surrounds us perhaps through our life that is very you-like. And under the you, that experience is accelerated. And we suddenly find ourselves kind of living into that body, that placental body, and being given the kind of ability perhaps to begin to change consciousness to actually work with it. So I hope that answers to some extent or gives a picture for you of that, of your question. That's a good start. <laughs> Look forward to hearing more. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for your question. Thanks, April. So, Michael, I have a question for you. Um, and maybe Please. you can't answer the first part, but I'm wondering if you have an idea when your um, book will be ready. And the second part is, um, do you have any resources you recommend for learning more about the you? Your yes. Of yes. Yes. Well, I mean, the the book is is about 400 pages at the moment, so it's coming along. But uh, with the amount of teaching next year, uh, that, that's going to probably slow it down a little bit. I'm hoping in a year or so it will be ready to to send to to publishers and things like that. Um, so about a year's time from now, um, I'm hoping it will be ready. And to answer the second question. I've tried on my website to bring some resources together. So there's a, there's a reading list there on the website of books that one could look at and read. I would suggest people start there, just going to my website, youmysteries.com, and looking down through the, some of the book lists that I've uh, laid out there. And um, you'll find some really interesting things there. That's a good place to start, I would say. Great. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. So do you want me to kind of bring this to a little bit of a conclusion and, and then Please, end? that would be wonderful. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot there I've said, and, and it's, I've tried to bring a lot in in a short space of time, so I'm aware that some of that will need to be digested. Um, but really, I'd like to kind of read a quote from the Zohar, Book of Zohar, um, because we really see this tree of life, this Uic, leading to the forces of Anun, and the, the book of Zohar says that now the tree of life extends from above downwards and is the sun which illuminates all. And I feel for me that says so much about this descending into this, into this world in order to kind of ascend again. So when we go to the, through the U to Anun and to those forces that the U holds, we're really going towards a radical in my mind, a radical reawakening of, of consciousness. And as I've said, the U holds the forces of Anun, the forces of the original Earth. And the U is really a living doorway to Anun, and it represents an alternative way of approaching our relationship to the Earth. It offers, for me, a form of resistance to the current world order, you know, the solar cults, 
that often known in other places as the atonists that are seeking to control this world and really have controlled this world for over 3,000 years. And, you know, we all know now, particularly now, we're reaching a crescendo in this greed and avarice of this solar cults. So the, the co-creative relationship we, we seek here with the you of necessity involve the forces and beings of Anu, the forces of abundance, the shining land of death that is really a doorway to abundant life. And it's this world that cannot be laid hands on. It cannot be controlled by those who want control, by these atonists. It cannot be seized by them. And in fact, various occult groups, especially in the 19th century, in fact, attempted to take control of these forces, attempted to control the you, but they failed. But it doesn't mean the you isn't affected. The you has been held back, held in check by the dominant powers such as the church and, or through warfare in the past where the you was decimated across Europe and, and for use as a weapon of war. So the forces of the you lead us directly to Anun, to the underworld, to the shining ones, to the she, to the forces that we need to counter this desire for control that knows no end to its thirst for power. So the more that we can ally ourselves to these forces, these abundant forces, the forces of Anu, the more we can birth principles that are different from those that we used to seize and possess the world around us through our senses. The organs of senses, our organs of touch, must be differently constituted to those that we have today. And the you is a great teacher in this. So I'm not really interested in a messianic sort of message here saying that this is the only way. But the you is a doorway. It's a guardian, a gatekeeper to another consciousness, to another kind of embodiment, not beholden to the possessive activity of the senses. A gatekeeper to another way of being in relationship to nature and the divine, the seen and the unseen. This is why the you, for me, is a tree of life. And to be touched by the you is to be touched by eternity. And I'm going to just leave it there. Wow. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, really, thank you. And thank you to all of you for joining us on this call. I hope you um, are inspired by Michael and you and um, will hold these kernels of wisdom in your heart. Um, and if you enjoy today, I, will, I welcome you back to join us in January. Um, our next series will be January, our next um, teleseminar will be January 21st. And this is The Wisdom of Ancient Trees with Asperde Ananas of Damanhur. I've heard Asperde talk several times, and she's just an amazing, amazing um, speaker who also is inspiring. And on February 18th, we have Invited into Intimacy, the Spirit and Essence of Trees with Kate Gilday. And if you have not heard Kate speak before, um, she has written for us in our newsletter several times, but she really just speaks for the trees. Um, she's it's just pure beauty to hear Kate speak. Uh, so information along with today's, or information on Michael, along with today's and all previous teleseminars recordings are available on our website, natureevolutionaries.com. And while there, you can sign up for our newsletter to receive inspiration, articles from leading nature evolutionaries, and notices of our upcoming events. 
Also, while on our website, please um, press that Donate button, for it is all your donations that help us to have these free teleseminars and do the other great work of one. Um, and again, you can, find, you can find the link for Michael on our website, but also his website is youmysteries.com, where you can find, as Michael said, loads of information about you, his upcoming classes, and uh, podcasts for the Cranial Sacral uh, podcast program. So I am wishing you all a blessed solstice and a holiday season. May we use this time to find the light and create the world of our dreams where all beings are held sacred. So thank you again for joining us today. Blessings.